Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I've been asking for people to send me their suggestions and requests for episodes, and I'm so excited to report that one of you sent in a request. Stacy asked that I cover the World's Fair, and while I knew there was a lot to talk about with the World's Fair, I was totally not prepared for the wealth of information I would find once I got started. And so with my first official listener request comes my very first multi-part episode. In order to stick to my word and keep this bite-sized for you, there will be the History of the World's Fair, Parts 1, 2, and yeah, maybe even 3. Want me to cover a topic on U.S. history? Hit me up! You can find me on the Instagram at Civics and Coffee, all one word, the Facebook at Civics and Coffee, or the <laughs> old school method, email civicscoffeepod at gmail.com. And thanks again, Stacy, for the suggestion. This was a lot of fun. As the name implies, the World's Fair is an international exhibition held throughout the world. While I will give you a basic starting point for how they got started, I focus my episodes on the fairs held within the United States, since, well, this is a U.S.-based history podcast, and, well, enough crazy-ish went down at these fairs that it filled plenty of episode space. It's pretty amazing. So, what the heck are World's Fairs? How'd they get started? When did they start in the United States? All things I hope to cover this week. Grab your coffee, peeps. Let's do it. First, let's talk about what the fairs are and what they do. Most World's Fairs follow the same general format. They're hosted by major cities throughout the world and last for a few months, anywhere between three and six, and include varying exhibits to showcase advancements in technology, treasured artworks, and national pride. The World's Fairs, or International Expositions as they're sometimes known, were organized and directed by each individual country who hosted them until the creation of the Bureau of International Expositions in 1928. This organization was created in an effort to improve the overall quality of the fairs and to provide a sense of consistency between the host countries. The agency also helps ensure all participating countries get a shot at hosting their own fair. Before the agency was established, the United States kind of dominated the fair hosting stage, with five out of 19 being held within the United States. The first officially recognized international exhibition took place in Great Britain in 1851. Inspired by a series of French expositions held in 1844, the fair was known as the Great Exhibition. The idea of a World's Fair came from Prince Albert, who believed hosting an expo showing off British-developed goods and technology would demonstrate to the world they were a mighty power and a leader of industry. Held in Hyde Park, the fair displayed 100,000 exhibitions and highlighted the innovations of the burgeoning Industrial Revolution. And while other countries participated in the expo, over half the products on display came from British manufacturers and was a real boom for British products. London's fair drew 6 million visitors and welcomed people from all over the world. The main hall was built of iron and glass and became known as the Crystal Palace due to the amount of natural light emanating from the building. Guests included a number of U.S. citizens who were so impressed with the fair that they decided to host their own back home in the States. But of course, the United States always has to put their own spin on things, right? For example, 
Fairs held in the U.S. were primarily funded through private financing, where many of the expos held throughout Europe were funded in part, at least, with government dollars. The United States is also different in that their World's Fairs tended to include more entertainment-based exhibits. Think carnival rides, freak shows, and exotic animals. While they were super popular initially, they've lost their mystique as travel became easier and people could actually visit the real countries as opposed to the miniature caricature versions they were seeing at the fair. The fairs have been commonly divided into a series of themes spanning over a number of years. From 1851 to 1938, most of the fairs were focused on industrialization and demonstrating the technological advancements of each country. From 1939 to 1987 came a period of cultural exchange, which tended to focus more on social projects and international relationships over innovations. And since 1988, many fairs seem to have been focused on nation branding, hosting a fair to improve their overall image within the international community. The data on World's Fairs is a little muddled, but from what I could gather, there have been a total of 13 World's Fairs hosted by the United States, 14 if you include the unrecognized fair in 1853 in New York. While it still is not recognized as a true World's Fair, the exhibition of the industry of all nations was held in New York in Bryant Park in 1853 and 1854. The organizers were able to convince 17 nations to participate and drew an estimated 1,250,000 visitors, which equates to double the population of New York at the time, which stood at just 600,000. Truly imitating the fair across the pond, New York had their own version of the Crystal Palace, which also acted as the main exhibit hall for the fair. And, like the palace in Britain, New York's Crystal Palace burnt down in a fire in 1858. So starting with the unofficial official fair, New York's fair opened on July 14, 1853, and was attended by President Franklin Pierce. The president arrived for the opening ceremonies via steamboat, where he then mounted a trusty steed and galloped up Broadway to reach Bryant Park. While not an overly popular fair in comparison to some of the others I will cover, the New York fair was the first time a safety mechanism for elevators was displayed. The new device would catch an elevator if the hoisting rope ever broke. It would lead to the first passenger elevator installation just three years later. Unfortunately, New York's fair was considered a commercial and financial disaster, and the United States would avoid hosting another World's Fair for 20 years. Coming up on America's birthday, organizers decided to risk the cost and work associated with putting on another World's Fair and proposed a centennial celebration to take place in Philadelphia in 1876. The idea to host a World's Fair began in 1866, with the suggestion that the fair could be used as a way to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. While there were unofficial discussions, it appears as though the approval to begin the process of planning the World's Fair occurred in 1870. That means it took six years to plan. The federal government established a commission responsible for fundraising and planning the fair, and mandated the U.S. government would not be held liable for any costs associated with the exhibition. This commission would include one individual from each established state. And because it was made up of entirely men, a women-based board was also established by Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, the great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin, a founding father. But the female-centered board did not come easily. Women forced their way into the fair thanks to the New Century Club. Originally denied the ability to participate at all, this club helped construct a hall solely focused on showcasing women. Well white women, and their contributions to the history and innovation of the United States. Gillespie's group would raise $70,000 to house the expo dedicated to showcasing the advancements of the fairer sex. 
Everything in the pavilion was run by women, including a female-operated steam engine that provided power to other exhibits. The fair's selected location was West Fairmount Park and covered over 450 acres. Everything built for the fair was meant to be temporary, and over 200 pavilions were constructed to house the various exhibits and demonstrations prepared for the fair. In addition to the hundreds of pavilions were a number of halls with themes like agriculture and machinery. The main expo hall was massive, covering 21 acres and measured 1,832 feet long, 120 feet wide, and 70 feet tall. That is huge. Philadelphia is special due to its move away from one giant exposition hall. Prior fairs had visitors crammed into all one central building, and trying to formulate the best way to herd thousands of people turned into a logistical nightmare. By creating hundreds of separate spaces, the Philadelphia Fair allowed visitors to move seamlessly throughout the various exhibits. Preparing for the expected onslaught of new visitors to the city and wanting to make visiting the fair an easy and enjoyable experience, planners even commissioned temporary hotels to house the tourists and made upgrades to the transportation routes to the grounds. In a move ahead of its time, the planners even centralized the sale of various hotel rooms and put advertisements on the trains. Over 35 countries participated and were arranged in a geographic manner with the countries spaced around the main exhibit hall based on their proximity to the United States. And the U.S. fairs definitely like to showcase their new inventions. On display in Philadelphia was the newfangled typewriter and telephone. Ketchup also made its public debut at the fair, an invention I personally wish was never made. Gross. Another cool item on display was the right arm and torch of the Statue of Liberty, a gift from France. And Philadelphia's fair was infinitely more popular than its New York predecessor. An estimated 10 million people passed through the gates in Philadelphia, over a third of the U.S. population at the time. It was so large and so busy that the commissioners hired 500 guards to live on site and patrol the complex and make sure there was no riffraff tangling about. But despite its popularity, the fair was not considered a commercial success, partly for being forced to repay a loan from the federal government. However, the fair was successful in a number of other ways. Prior to the fair, the U.S. was seen as a small, rowdy nation without much to offer the world. Keep in mind, the U.S. was just about 10 years removed from the Civil War and therefore was not seen as a cohesive country, let alone a dominant world power. The success of the fair and the various U.S.-based goods increased overall exports from the United States, with many foreign nations coming away from the fair impressed with the advances the new country accomplished in a relatively short period. Like the ketchup. <laughs> I kid. Not even 20 years later, the U.S. hosted another World's Fair this time in celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's, quote, discovery of the New World. Held in Chicago in 1893, this fair was titled World's Columbian Exposition and saw 27 million visitors. This fair had all sorts of crazy things associated with it. I'm probably not going to be able to dive into too many details in this episode, but let me first start with how Chicago got the bid. A number of cities were vying for the hosting opportunity, with competition between New York, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Chicago hitting a fever pitch. Focused on private financing, Chicago ended up the winning bidder due to its ability to outraise the other contenders. The vote to determine the host city was held in the United States House of Representatives and would take eight ballots for the Windy City to be selected. The site for the fair? Jackson Park taking over 690 acres and erecting over 200 temporary buildings to house the various exhibits. The planners, John Wellborn Root, Daniel Burnham, 
Frederick Law Olmsted, and Charles B. Atwood were dedicated to making the site of the expo a prototype of what they thought the, quote, ideal city should look like. Developers built halls and pavilions in the neoclassical style, and each building was covered in plaster of Paris painted white, making it shine day and night and helped give the fair its nickname, the White City. I have so much more to tell you about this and the other fairs that have taken place throughout our history, but I'm going to leave you hanging for the moment. Next week, I'm going to wrap up Chicago's fair and give you the highlights from some of the other fairs held throughout the United States. We're going to talk about a serial killer and a battle about the Olympics before this is all said and done. Thanks again, Stacy, for sending me down this rabbit hole of crazy. I can't wait to keep going next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.